New Photic Realm announcement. Uh, submission windows for upcoming issues. Issue 10, the theme is justice. That's hard-boiled fiction with a supernatural twist. The deadline for that will be April 1st, 2020. Issue 11, the theme is kaiju. Giant monsters terrorizing civilization. Deadline will be October 1st, 2020 for those stories. Issue 12, the theme is lycanthropy, which is, of course, self-explanatory. Um, it can be any type of animorph with a bloody twist. Uh, so I guess that's werewolves and Jesus, giant, I don't know. What do people turn into? Seals? I've just got a little seal on my desk, so I thought of that. I don't know. You have to be more imaginative than I just was. Uh, but the deadline for lycanthropy, January 1st, 2021. Good luck to everyone submitting. I wrote this thing. I hope you like it. Let's talk about it, yeah. Let's lose track. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Talking to Leo Hello and welcome to another episode of Losing the Plot. It's a podcast where I, your host, Leo Robertson, talk to mostly writers, uh, mostly about the writing, but really about anything and everything. We lose the plot together, hence the title of the show. My guest this episode is Alex Delamonica. As AM Delamonica, they have published over 40 short stories and uh, five novels, mostly in the fantasy and science fiction genres. Most recently, as LX Beckett, they have published a novella in fantasy and science fiction magazine called Freezing Rain, A Chance of Falling, uh, and then the novel Game Changer, which is the first in what seems to be a trilogy. Um, this novella in fantasy and science fiction takes place in the same universe as uh, the novel Game Changer, so I would check that out if you're interested. Um, it's a world in the near future, in I think I believe the late 21st century um, and it tackles the gig economy uh, a rating system of people based on their social standing uh, economic collapse ecological collapse and uh, lots of heavy themes and intense world building um, so I do hope you'll check that out and I hope you enjoy my chat with Alex Delamonica here it is. What I'd first like to talk to you about, I think, is uh, the way we got connected, which is through pulp literature, because you just had a story come out in a recent issue. Yes, yes. A story called Rap Party. Yes. Um, which is a noir story. It's a crime story, um, not a science fiction or fantasy story. And it sort of draws on a long ago period of my life when I was still working in theater. Um, and uh, and I, I tried to fold that into sort of a noir story uh, format. I was I was trying kind of to to decode what noir is and what it meant to me and write some stories sort of set in Western Canada with that sensibility. So that was that was probably the closest I got. Mm -hmm. And you used to work in theater. 
a very long time ago. Yeah, in the uh, in the late eighties and early nineties. Late eighties, early nineties, and you were—it was about that time that you started writing as well, right? Uh, I had been writing pretty much from my teens, which was a little earlier than the late eighties. Um, but um, I, I sort of diverted into theater very briefly, and then just sort of realized my heart was in science fiction. So then I kind of came back out and went back to writing books. My first publications were all fantasy and science fiction stories. It was what I'd spent most of my my young life reading. It was what I really loved, and um, it was it was the kind of story that resonated with me most. So, mm-hmm. um, I was also very fond of crime fiction and um, history, but uh, but I started with the more fantastical stuff and sort of worked my way back to crime. Right. And uh, I also read in in your interview there that you recently finished an MFA in creative writing. Uh, yes. Uh, yesterday I defended my thesis, which was actually a screenplay for a horror movie. Um, so now it's just paperwork and I graduate in May. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank how, you. I'm very excited. Yeah. How long were you working on that? Uh, I entered the program about two and a half years ago in Mm -hmm. September of 2018, I guess. What does does an MFA in creative writing have to teach somebody who's been writing for such a long time? Uh, That is is a really excellent question. And I had had reached a point as an artist where I felt like um, leveling was getting harder and harder, which it should. You should always be reaching for the next sort of breakthrough. And each one should ideally be further away than the last one. Uh, so it's it's very much like gaming, where you suddenly you need three million experience points to get to level forty. Um, <laughs> but but I I have had periods in my life where I've I've sort of not had as much mentorship as I would like. So I I I went to the program looking in part for that kind of a a thing where I I would go in and people wouldn't know that I had a fairly long track record because I didn't tell them. And they wouldn't know that I taught because I didn't tell them. And they would just treat me like another guy in the workshop. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I would see what they actually thought of my stuff and how they reacted to it and, and see what, what kind of deficits I had as a writer and which ones I wanted to address. Mm-hmm. The other thing about the UBC program is it is um, multi-genre, not in the sense of um, genres of fiction, but in the sense of, of the types of things you write. So I had to write plays. I had to write screenplays. I wrote a TV pilot. I wrote about 20 poems. Um, and and so it, it was a, a stretch in that sense as well. Interesting. And how about screenplays? Had you written them before? I think I had written one short film a really long time ago and then done nothing with it. I'd adapted a short story by someone else. Um, but these this the TV pilot I wrote and the, the screenplay that was my, my final thesis were the first full-length um, screenplay projects I'd ever worked on. Have you ever made films yourself? No. No. Would you say that this uh, thesis that you've just done gets turned into film? Like, how, how much would you want to be involved I'll definitely submit it to contests and producers and see what I can get going for it. Um, I feel as though if if there was a stage where they wanted to say, okay, here's here's a sort of standard development deal, 
we take the script, we give you money, you know, your name will be on the finished project. Like I would totally try that once. Um, because I don't, I don't have the experience in the film industry to think that I could direct something tomorrow. Um, so why, why would I take that on? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And so Game Changer came out recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It came out in September, 2019. September, 2019. Um, so Unfortunately, it hasn't made it to Stavanger yet, but that's okay because it takes oh, it takes a while to, for things to get here. But I have been uh, heavily perusing your blog. I've read so much about the world. I've read your uh, novella that was in oh nice thank you very much. Yeah, of course, it's it's really fascinating world that you've built. Um, I want to know first what made you go for a pseudonym. Oh. It seemed like it wouldn't be necessarily a bad idea to sort of split my fantasy identity and my science fiction identity into sort of two separate tracks so that different readerships could find them um, comfortably and easily. Uh, I chose the name Beckett, actually, because I'm a big quantum leap nerd. Uh -huh. And uh, I tried every family name. Uh, my, my given name, uh, Della Monica, is, is Italian. I tried all of the other Italian family names with LX, and none of them really worked. Um, so then I just was, my wife Kelly actually said, well, why don't you just choose Beckett then? I was like, oh, yeah, I love that. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a fun thing to do. I, it was kind of a big secret for about a year and a half. Um, so I was tweeting as Lex and tweeting as, as me and not not actually uh, admitting that there were there was only one body resident to that to that identity, but um, but now it's kind of an open thing. People know, and some of some of my readers of my fantasy have have tried the book and liked it, and um, and I have some new readers in in a more sort of near future science fiction fan area. That's cool because yeah, I'd seen I think I'd seen some of those tweets. I'd seen the cover of the book and read a little bit about what it was about and thought that's cool um but hadn't heard of the author before i was like where is this author is just out of the gate <laughs> like <laughs> got this huge yeah. novel and novella coming out um so then when it you was, yeah oh sorry it was sort of it was sort of a cool thing that um i had never ever actually published a novella before so when freezing rain a chance of falling uh came out i could say it was my first novella and mm -hmm. it was true I think I've published every other length of thing. I've published flash fiction. I've published short stories. I've published a billion novelettes, but it's true. My first novel, novella. So. <laughs> but you're uh, you're married to somebody who writes a, you know, a fantastic science fiction novellas. Yes, yes, I am. Um, I, I take it she was your first reader. Uh, actually, I don't generally run my rough drafts past Kelly. Um, I, I run the, this is almost ready to go draft um, because that's just what works better for us. I read her stuff first out of the gate, but she reads my next to finished Paul copy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that just somehow that works for her picking up the things I've missed in every other rewrite. Right. Um, I think the thing that when I read the novella uh, that hit me the most, even with all of the uh, new ideas that there are in that story, 
was just the weather, I think. Because <laughs> it's, it's so dark and cold here in Norway as well, and this character is trudging through slush, and that seemed to me to be the worst of their problems, oddly enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, there were days when I felt that way too. We had uh, we had recently moved from Vancouver uh, back to, or not back to Toronto, but we killed, I grew up in uh, Alberta, which is very cold and very snowy um, in the north in fact, which is quite a bit more cold and snowy than it is here in Toronto. So so I was returning to winter after something like 22 years away from it. And um, it, it was mostly a positive experience. Like I, I had hated it as a kid, um, but I got enough of a break. And Toronto is that little bit warmer. Spring comes that little bit sooner. Uh, but that, that experience of trudging through the fresh snowfall when nobody has cleared the walks and everything is warm and the the slush is running in the streets was was really vivid for me, um, and yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed adding that to Dro's troubles, even though he had so many other troubles as well. <laughs> Do you think that it is in other ways a Canadian story? Yes, um, it's. In, at this point in the in the the universe I'm writing about, it's it's sort of early in the in the story because uh, the the story the novella takes place when Dro is in his twenties, and it takes place about twenty years from now. It's about someone who's born now who is a young man, mm-hmm. um, twenty years into into the the century, and the the novel takes place in twenty one oh one, and it is largely about Dro's daughter. He's in it, but he's like 90. Mm-hmm. And um, this phase that I'm writing about in the novella is, is called the setback. It's, it's the period of history I believe we're in now. And uh, it's, it's where we're starting to see climate change ramp up and we're seeing all of the things we are actually seeing happen in the world. Uh, and, and it feels very precarious. And, and Drew is, is a guy who's, who's reached the point in history where just being an average white guy doesn't actually get you anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, he's sort of the, from the first generation where that privilege has really been disenfranchised and, and he is scraping to make it. Um, and in that universe, I, I remember the question was, is this a really Canadian story? Mm-hmm. In that po- at that point in history, Toronto is still in Canada and Canada is still more or less what it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but as the setback continues and evolves into the clawback, what happens is a large part of North America gets depopulated and we end up with a, a mega city around the Great Lakes, um, which is effectively one p- political entity despite the U.S. Canadian border lying between it. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, at that point, the stuff that happens in in the Toronto district of North America isn't really as Canadian. Um, but Drew's a very Canadian guy. You know, he's from here and now. <laughs> um, what comes first when you do this? Do you, do you spend a lot of time building the world, or did the novella come first, or did the novel? The novella came first. I, I often spawn longer projects out of shorter works. Mm-hmm. So I um, I had I had really been hung up on and trying to write about the idea of an internet shaming, um, which is the other problem for those for those who haven't read the novella. There's the snow, but then there's an internet shaming that causes Drew to lose all of his social capital, which basically means he also loses his right to work. 
Um, and um, it was like maybe the second or third time I tried to write this story about a journalist who just sort of, through an error of judgment, made himself horrifically unpopular and uh, was, was sort of scraping to get by. Um, Okay, I've rambled to the point where I now I'm trying to hone back in on your question. It was it was which uh, it was which came first. Oh, the world, so the novella, yeah. yeah, the world building. Mm-hmm. So I sort of I started with this idea of the, the the internet shaming, and then when I when I had him down and out, that was sort of where I came up with the idea of him shoveling snow for strokes, mm-hmm. um, and from there sort of came the the autonomous car network. Um, and and from there probably came stuff like the bamboo bailing for carbon sinks and suddenly i had enough and then on on the other side of it on the internet the other internet side of it was then i decided that he had this sidekick and it was right when gotham had had started and and i was feeling extremely fanish about sean pertwee <laughs> and his version of alfred pennyworth um so i conceived crane as this this piece of sentient fan fiction who had sort of been merged with a program like Siri and, and was there to help grow. Um, and by once you have that much really world building for me becomes just making the rest of the world nuanced enough to make that plausible. Right. So it's kind of a mixture of ideas and also walking the character through the world, seeing how yeah. they interacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sort of grows as as you go. It just sort of spirals ever further out from where you started. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm kind of lucky in that I I remember that progression of how that novella came together. And this uh, social reputation system, mm-hmm. which is similar, as I've seen you linked a very interesting article about what's going on in China. And you um you've been on some trips to China. Uh, yes, the uh, Future Affairs Administration sent me to China in, uh, I think it was 2017. Um, you, by now, you everyone listening knows I'm bad with dates. Um, <laughs> we got to go to a one of the poorer provinces in China near Shanghai. And um, this was a number of science fiction writers, um, myself and Kelly and um, Lawrence Schoen, um, for example. And what we we got to do was tour a anti-poverty initiative that is in place there as part of the Chinese government's goal to eliminate poverty by 2030. Um, and it was, it was a remarkable experience. Um, and then the, the, oh, what's the word I want? The ask in exchange for taking us there and showing us this this program was that they asked for everyone to write a short story about what they had seen set in that region of China. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, it was um, it was amazing. <laughs> um, so was was that the influence for you thinking about this social reputation idea? No, because I've been hung up about social. Uh, shamings about social media shamings for a while. I had actually come up with the system of social media uh, strikes and strokes before the Chinese rolled out their own system. Hmm. Uh, so it was one of those things where I had sort of invented my version and then I read an article about their version and I saw the parallels. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> um, but um, 
but that made it super interesting to read about and research. Uh, and and this is the thing about writing near future science fiction, right? You look at the world, you say, well, this is what I think it's going to be like in 20 years. And then someone's like, ha, 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 we'll have that next year. <laughs> <laughs> it's just how it goes. Yeah. Um, I get the impression from the story and also from what I read in your blog that uh, you don't think it's entirely a bad thing. I have, a, it's a mixed thing, right? My, my view of the, the world in 2101 is that we collectively make great sacrifices uh, to preserve some of the things that we value most about the culture we've all built. Mm -hmm. um, this, this amazing, miraculous culture that we all live in that is endangering our future. Um, so we give up privacy because there's a big conversation about privacy. And that's, that's something that people are really prickly about. And, you know, I, I do not want to give up my privacy. You know, when my drugstore phones up and starts telling me which prescriptions I haven't renewed, I really get quite narky with them. Um, <laughs> but then I started thinking about all of the things that happen under a veil of secrecy and particularly sexual assault. Mm. And I started thinking, you know, if, if the price of every person being on camera all the time was that the rate of sexual assault dropped to something negligible, would I give up my privacy then? And as a thought experiment, the answer was kind of like, well, how could you not? Right. Mm. Um, so I, I thought it was a nice edgy dangerous thing to play with. Cause mostly when we write stories about lack of privacy, we, the position is, Oh my God, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I was like, and what, what if, what if all those guys in all those boardrooms and all those back rooms in the government had to be on the record all the time? Like, what would that be like? What if I could access the records of Apple's boardroom meetings about what goes into my iPhone? Um, so, so the, the, the invention in the book is called total accountability culture. And because it's a book, it works pretty well. Um, I, I'm fully aware that in the real world, you know, parts of it would work okay and parts of it would be weaponized and, you know, like everything in life, it would be a bit of a mixed bag. Hmm. No, I, I'm interested to see in how it plays out in the book. I mean, I'm really, I'm really not, I'm not sure. I suppose that uh, you would see, I mean, yeah, you would see similar things that you see here, right? Which is like random random public shamings that people don't deserve every yeah. now and then but yeah well, that some, would be of, like, some of the idea of total accountability culture is that that some of the thing that one of the things that happens with internet shamings is thousands of people pile onto one person mm -hmm. um and that person's privacy is completely eliminated but all of those faceless people attacking them are are sort of safe uh. behind the wall of their own their own privacy. Mm -hmm. um, I also, I don't think there's a lot on, in the text of Game Changer about this, but the idea of the strikes and strokes is that they, they have cash value and you have to pay to strike someone. So to lower their social media capital, you have to basically pay some of your own and it's an exponential effect. So if you want to give someone one strike, you know, you, you pay three, but if you want to give them two strikes, you pay 10. If you want to give them three strikes, you pay a hundred. So the the ability of people to just 
basically denial of service attack others is limited in that way too. Okay, interesting. So yeah, okay, there's different penalties in play than there are in yeah. the real world. Yeah, it's, it's, it's allocated a little differently. Hmm. Um, and in your world, it's, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's only, the only people who are working very, very hard are the ones that want to, essentially. Yes, it's, it is also a minimum standard of income society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this has collided with the gig economy in a way where it's not, it's not just that um, the only people who are, it's not just that if you want work, you can have it. There's actually a shortage of work. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are sort of leveling on the junior track of multiple careers because they're trying to put together a perma job. Um, but they're doing that in a context of knowing that their rent is paid and knowing that they will have enough to eat and knowing that they have access to medica- medical assistance and food. So what they're really, what they are really trying to build up in terms of income is a higher standard of living from a comfortable base. Hmm. So tell me what your thoughts are on the notion of a utopia. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't believe people are necessarily wired for utopia. Um, We are all sort of fundamentally set up to be dissatisfied. Even when you have a pretty good life, one of the things that is always going to be most apparent to you is the thing you don't have or the thing you feel you need that you don't have. Um, so so I, I don't believe in worlds where everything is absolutely equal and nobody is ever mean to anybody else and everyone just sort of wanders around in a state of low-key euphoria. Um, but I, I think we can build societies that are more just than the one we have now. Um, I think we have consistently been doing so over the course of the last, you know, many centuries, um, even as we've also built some incredibly horrifying things. And, mm. and I think there are a lot of people who, who buy into the idea that, that living in a safe, just, equal society is beneficial to everyone. So one of the things about the world in Game Changer is that there was this horrible climate catastrophe. Everyone kind of had to pull together to ensure survival, collective survival. And a lot of the basic assumptions of our society kind of got thrown out the window and re um, renegotiated. And When the book starts, it's working quite well for a couple of reasons. One, the system isn't that old, so nobody's had that much time to think about hacking it. And two, everybody's resources have largely gone into fending off human extinction. So nobody's really had the resources to try and make a big take from everyone else. Mm. Um, We get things into a good state and then inevitably people start screwing with it, essentially. Uh, and when Game Changer starts, nobody's had that opportunity. So things are kind of good. Do you, do you have in your head how many books do you think you'll write in this world? I have the idea that I would like to write three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't know if Tor will agree with that idea until, you know, probably pretty soon. 
Um, if, if the story were to end with Deal Breaker, like it's enough of an ending that it wouldn't be leaving everyone with a cliffhanger. Mm. Um, I think Deal Breaker ends in kind of a nice place. But I, I did have an idea for a third book for sure. And then a lot of my projects sort of spawn short story spinoff work mm. as well. So I'm, I'm just now contemplating a story about a character named Miss Fortune Wilson um, and, and her life during the clawback. Hmm. And so how much do you plan ahead in general? How much fiction do you write? Uh, I... I have the capacity to write an extraordinarily large amount of fiction in a comparatively short amount of time. Like hmm. uh, both of these novels are about 135,000 words long. Um, their first drafts, I almost certainly got them done within a year. I've been writing them while doing the master's degree. So, you know, while writing these two quite long books, I've also written a play and a screenplay and all those poems and been workshopping a different book with my classmates and um, oh, a TV pilot uh, and occasional works like the short story for China um, plus teaching. Um, and because I teach, I, I also write hundreds of thousands of words of critique of beginner work every year. So, so I'm quite enormously productive. Yeah, I would say so. That's, <laughs> that's nuts. Um. Um, well, I mean, it comes up, I do also work seven days a week and I do sometimes work quite long days, but, um, but not, not being in the MFA program anymore has made, made a bit of a dent in that. And I'm, I'm quite glad. <laughs> um, Was that always the case? Um, the productivity? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to think of myself as a bit of a little engine that could. <laughs> I, I, I write fiction first thing in the morning, pretty much every morning. Um, it piles up. It just piles up. So, and and I have the advantage of a flexible schedule because teaching is is not a nine to five job. It's you know, mm-hmm. you show up on the day of class or you're teaching online, so you do it when when it suits you. You teach at two different universities. Yeah, that's right. I teach at the UCLA Extension Writers Program, and I teach at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. Mm. Do you do much like reading for pleasure as well? Do you have time? <laughs> that is, I do take a hit there because I read so much beginner work. Yeah. Um, and, and what's particularly difficult is reading fiction. So I, I tend to read a lot of nonfiction for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as, as soon as my classes are, are over for the term, I try to find a book that will let me read Um that will get me a little bit of fiction anyway. So last year I managed to read This Is How You Lose the Time War, and I read Gideon the Night, and I read um, The Future of Another Timeline, mm. and there were probably a bunch of other novels in there, and I read a lot of short stories um, because that's a little easier. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I read, yeah, a lot of student work and um, some history and some pop science and some crime, true crime books. Do you find yourself picking up new influences still? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I must. I must. I'm, I'm trying to think what would 
The person I would have been most likely to pick up as a writing influence in the last few years would be mystery author Tana French, because I've I've read her books the most and the most deeply. Um, but I can't say I think her style has seeped into mine that much. Um, and partly, you know, she's writing in an Irish accent, so um, <laughs> there's a natural barrier. Uh, I watch a lot of British crime TV, so I, I'm very comfortable speaking in British slang. And I, a fair number of my Game Changer characters are, are from England. But um, hmm, that is a really good question. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'll probably be able to see that in five years. <laughs> How about... Um... So the book came out and you were still anonymous as LX Beckett for a while. Right. Yes. Did yes. anyone... Was it about six weeks? Six weeks. In those yes. six weeks, did anyone pick up that it was, that it was you from, from the voice of your writing? Uh, I don't think anyone guessed from the voice of my writing. There were some reviewers who they they don't... Um, they always out you because they they don't want to basically put anything into the public record that seems deceptive. So I think Kirkus... Um, mentioned that they knew it was me because it's on the copyright page right like mm -hmm. the cat's out of the bag as soon as the book comes out um and locus interviewed me and they were you know we will do this but we want to be upfront about this so once the locus interview came out it was kind of everyone knows um but i still run into people who d didn't know and then they're like oh i know your other books too um so maybe that means the voices are fairly different <laughs> it's, well it's cool when you told me i was like oh double exclusive Two, two great <laughs> authors. <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah. Um, are there other genres that you have attempted or want to attempt so far? I've read crime, fantasy, science fiction material of yours. Uh, uh, I would like to write a straight up crime novel sometime. I mean, a lot of a lot of my last five books have had crime and thriller elements woven into the genre stuff, but. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've tried a few times to write a straight-up mm. contemporary crime novel um, set in what we consider consensus reality. And um, I think I'm getting close to having one that is publishable, but uh, nobody has bitten yet. And I, I've been thinking about whether, whether I'm ready to embark on the next one. But some of that will depend on whether I end up writing a third book in the game changer universe so cool um oh, something else i noticed uh you you did the clarion workshop uh, a while ago mm. yes i went to clarion west in seattle in 1995 mm -hmm. um it was a great experience uh, michael swanwick was one of my teachers gardner dozois uh, Catherine Dunn, John Crowley, Howard Waldrop, and Joan Vinge. Those were my instructors. Mm -hmm. um, I went to the Seattle workshop because I lived in Vancouver. It was very close. Mm -hmm. And um, I wrote a lot of fiction and I workshopped a lot of stuff and I made some friends and I did all the things you, you generally do there. Um, I tried to push myself pretty hard. So a lot of the stuff I wrote was somewhat more experimental than the fiction I had been selling at that point. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it didn't end up selling, but, uh, but I felt I came out of it a better writer. Uh, Cause I was thinking of applying. Oh yeah. Well, I absolutely recommend it. Um, Clarion is 
variant is a, a really terrific thing to do. If you have the luxury of choice, like to choose your year, mm -hmm. it's worth waiting for, you know, a year when um, someone you really respect and worship is teaching. Um, like if there's a chance to meet your favorite writer and they teach every couple of years, you know, it's worth it to kind of hang on and see. Um, but you know, not everyone has that, that mm. kind of flexibility. No, that's that's good advice. But are, are there, are there, are there lessons like key lessons that you got when you were there that you still think about? Ooh, <laughs> think back. <laughs> um, non writing lessons as opposed to life lessons, I imagine. Um, However, you want to respond. <laughs> John Crowley was very interested in science fiction with an extremely literary voice. Mm -hmm. um, and and it was a, an interesting framing of, of the dichotomy you sometimes see people picking up the idea that there's literary fiction and science fiction. Um, so it was kind of, that sparked some sort of interesting discussions. Um, I think in some ways, Catherine Dunn was the biggest surprise. I wasn't that familiar with her work before I went and uh, she was such a great writer and such a lovely person. And she was also just sort of shy and terrified of us, but making <laughs> it really well. Um, so you, one of the, one of the life lessons I think I really learned from her was like, it's, it's okay to seem confident and be terrified and to hold both those things at the same time and admit that you're terrified to these people who totally won't even believe you. She was just a really authentic an engaging and interesting person. Hmm. So, do you find often that like the a writer's confidence and their abilities don't <laughs> don't line up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially as someone who teaches, um, I I see people who are off the scale amazing writers who think that they are crap. I see people who are not off the scale amazing writers who think that they are. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then there's all the stuff that goes with that. There's the folks who are pretty okay with their writing, but then you take them to a reading and they're like terrified. Mm. Um, so it's, you can find any of those things in any mixture in any group of writers. Mm -hmm. um, I taught a master class at UCLA last year and I, um, I made them do speed dating pitches and I made them do a public reading. Um, and it was, you could see where some of them were really struggling with that sort of public aspect of things. Um, or of even just figuring out how to confidently describe their novel in a paragraph. Cool. Um, so I have, uh, there's something I've, I'm keen to ask you about, but you, you can tell me no. Okay. Um, you identify as non-binary, is that right? I do, I do. Uh, when did you, when did you come to that decision? Uh, actually science fiction took me there. In, right. uh, in 1997, uh, Circlet Press came out with a book called Gen Genderflex. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think I was reviewing books for Tangent at the time, actually. Um, so I got this book and I read it and there were three or four stories about gender queer people in it um, because we didn't really say non-binary in 1997. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I, I felt this 
amazing sense of recognition and, and was like, oh, you know, this thing that has always seemed slightly out of place in my life, I understand this. This is what I am. So um, I have been telling people in various ways, using various words that I was, was genderqueer since then when mm -hmm. it seemed relevant. Um, but I wasn't overly out. I wasn't very brashly out about it at that time because, you know, I'm, I live, I'm assigned female at birth. I had sort of at that point switched over from a very butch look to presenting as female again. And, um, you know, to the eyes of the world, I'm a fairly ordinary lesbian. Mm -hmm. um, but, but there were times when it, it felt relevant. For example, I'm, I was one of the founding members of Broad Universe. And when we were figuring out who we were going to include in the organization, who we weren't, I was like, well, you know, depending on your definition of woman, mm -hmm. there's, there's some stuff we need to talk about here. Um, but in recent years, because one of the cohorts I teach are undergraduates, um, and I, I see a lot of genderqueer people among my students, um, and they do not see a lot of genderqueer people sort of looking back at them, especially from a position of power like the professor's podium, mm -hmm. um, I've, been, I've been trying to represent more. So um, I've gone to they pronouns, and I'm a little more in your face with my gender identity. Um, and uh, ultimately, it, it doesn't change anything about who I am or who I have always been. It's just a different way of sort of talking about myself. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that you're the first... You're the first person that I've talked to who, like, who has identified as non-binary. I know somebody else who just came out as it were as non-binary and I'd spoken to them before but never having to use their alternative pronouns or anything so um right right well it's 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 becoming a very uh, comfortable thing in some circles here in Canada mm -hmm. like it's it's very typical you know in at the beginning of a semester for example to walk into class and say you know I want your names if you want to share your pronouns please do here are mine um, and none of none of my twenty something students even blinks, like they all get it. Mm -hmm. um, but but as someone who's a little older, like it's it is more of an adjustment. Even though you know, even though it's pertinent to me directly, um, I still misgender people. Um, I still occasionally you know have those like really you're oh okay, um, mm -hmm. you know we're collectively figuring it out, but but it isn't seamless yet. Frictionless. Yeah. It isn't frictionless yet. Mm -hmm. Um. Here, okay. Here is my before I ask you, you know, to, to tell us what where we can find out more information about you and everything. Uh, my last question to you is that you you just celebrated your thirty first anniversary. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's a big day. Defend the thesis. Be married thirty one years. That's an incredible day. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a quite a pair of achievements. <laughs> um, but it, I don't know, like how 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 do you be married for thirty? Yeah, years? yeah. Well, obviously, it helps very much if you picked by sheer luck someone with whom you're very compatible. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
it helps as well. And this is again a lottery if you both happen to just be really committed to the same vision of marriage, mm. um, which in in our case is is sort of very much the one true love, monogamous, you know, lockstep through life kind of image. And there are there are other people who have other beautiful marriages that have different visions of them entirely. And I think as long as they they then in that that vision, it's it doesn't have to be what I have. It can mm. still work. Um, I grew up in a very small northern Alberta community, um, a largely Catholic community, and and it was a very much the default assumption that everyone would get married. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember there was a point where I was having a disagreement with my mother because we were, you know, I was a kid, but we were thinking about moving, and she said to me. If we stay in this town, all you are ever going to want is to be married, um, which says a lot about her and what was going on in her life. Mm. Um, and and it was the first time I'd, I'd ever had that sort of flat assumption that surrounded everything kind of questioned. Um, so, you know, we did move and, you know, I saw a little more of the world and, and I, I certainly saw that not everybody had to be married to be happy, but... I was still very invested in the idea and I was growing up in a country that would not allow me to be married to the person I chose. Mm. Um, So we had an illegal marriage 31 years ago. And then when uh, marriage equality came to Canada, we, we had a second legal wedding in 2003, but, but I think some of, some of the investment in it, aside from our devotion to each other and our similar interests and the fact that we work really hard at, at making each other happy, is that, you know, for a large chunk of my adult life, it was forbidden to me. And for a large part of my married life, I assumed it would always be illegal. So, of course, you want the thing you can't have. <laughs> So all this, all this bigotry just made stronger gay marriages. <laughs> that's, that's sort of the, the story that we like to tell. I mean, it's not true of everyone, obviously, but mm. I went to a lesbian wedding this year that was so beautiful and so unorthodox in its structure and so perfect for the participants. Um, and it, it gave me such joy. Um, to just have this simple civil right that oddly, you know, to look at it, you'd be like, but how does this change your day-to-day life? It mm. doesn't. It fucking doesn't, right? I still live with her. I've always lived with her. Yeah. You know, we had the anniversary before we had the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is one of the ways in which the world has gotten better. Well, isn't that just a fantastic note to end on, <laughs> given, given speculations for the future and so on? Um, is there anything that we missed, anything we need to know about you or your work that's coming out? Um, yes. So I will say again, Game Changer came out on September 17th, 2019, mm-hmm. uh, under the name LX Beckett. And LX Beckett is my Twitter handle for my science fiction-y stuff. 
if you happen to be nominating for the Nebula or the Hugo or any of those things, it's eligible this year. Oh my God. Um, it's really fun book. So many things happen in the future. Not all of them are great. We have the zero privacy culture. You can look at the world as being a really great one or possibly a really problematic one, but the story is fun. And um, I, I hope some of your listeners will enjoy it. Oh, I'm sure they will. I've got uh, I've got some very dedicated listeners who have met up, holding oh, copies nice. of each other's books. So <laughs> you never know. You might <laughs> maybe we'll all make some new friends out of this chat. That's that'd, you be, know. that'd be incredible. <laughs> okay, so that was Alex Delamonica. Um, the novella Freezing Rain, A Chance of Falling is available for free on CuriousFictions.com. I've put a link to that in the description. So if this uh, game changer novel sounds like your type of thing, maybe check out the novella and uh, I hope you enjoyed the chat. As always, if you're a reader, writer, editor, somebody who's interested in fiction or art in general or whatever it is, you can always get in touch with me using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to hearing from you. But that's all from me for now. So until next time, bye bye.